Welcome to Three, a show about Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic. I'm Gil Gross, host of Monday Match Analysis with outstanding tennis journalist Joel Drucker and Amy Lundy. And on today's show, we tackle a question that I think everyone's going to find very interesting. Are the big three getting better or worse in their mid to late 30s now because they're still doing mostly nothing but winning? Uh, but we start with a bit of news with scheduling, something that we've, we've had to talk about a lot in 2020 on this show. Paris Bercy, the next Masters 1000 on the schedule. Nadal will play. Novak won't. Why do you think that is, Joel? Well, Novak won it last year. So given the way the points have been allocated, he'll be able to retain his 2019 points. So he can't do any better. He can't exceed that total. And so he opted to play in Vienna where he can get some more ranking points. Yeah, that, that checks out. Um, I think for Nadal, the question was, is he just going to, you know, with, with the pandemic and how uncomfortable it has made him, which he's been on the record as saying, um, and indoor hardcourt being his least successful surface and presumably his least favorite surface, was he just going to basically call it, a, call it a year and get ready for Australia 2021? So I think if there's a surprise here, Maybe Novak a tad, a little bit surprised, but with Rafa, I, I think I was strongly considering the idea that maybe he'd sit out the rest of the season. Yeah, if I were Rafa, I probably would. I mean, people are going to hate me for saying this, but I almost feel like at this point, none of this matters. The slams are over. Um, I know a lot of people track year in number one, but in the big picture, when you're looking back on the careers and, and stuff of the greats, I just don't think these little point quibbles and year in number ones and all that, I don't think it matters. That's not what people think of. And in a hundred years, people may remember the big three, but they're not going to remember stuff like this. Well, here's a, this is kind of interesting. So we're, we're kind of seeing these things a little differently. Like it's funny. I wanted Nar. I thought Rafa wasn't going to go to the U.S. Open, and you thought he should go. I see what Nadal is doing now is preparation for Australia. It's called match play, and remember, he's been undermatched play this year. So I think it's this is almost kind of pre-training for what could be Australia. And and then wait, 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 wait. Let me just finish one other thing. The um, year in number one, I think, is a significant point in the history of tennis. I, as a historian, I take tremendous significance to year end the meaning of year end number one. I don't look back though. I won't look back on Nadal's career and say, oh, the hole in his career is that he never won Paris Indoor or Vienna. That I agree with you on about the significance of the specific events. But when it comes to something like year end number one, even in this wacky year where like, uh, you know, these players are going to have played what a half or a third as many matches as they normally play in most years. Uh, I still think that has meaning to finish the year number one. I don't know what Nadal thinks about it. That might not matter, but I think Nadal is wanting to get some, some match play. We've completely role reversed Joel, because <laughs> I was really mad at Nadal for not playing the U S open. And I was very worried about his lack of match play going into the French. I mean, did the guy prove that wrong or did he prove it wrong? He didn't need no match play. He could lose to Diego Schwartzman going in and still just run through that thing. I, I just, I think 
the indoor, the Paris indoor is not necessarily good prep for Australia. And it's just my opinion. And there's enough of a separation there. I think what is going to be key is the players getting down under, getting acclimated to the time change, getting acclimated to the surface and all that, and getting acclimated to the restrictions that Tennis Australia is putting into play and wanting them down there on December 15th and all that. That, I do think, is, is going to be crucial for 2021. Well, let's also remember, though, that the players are automatically entered into a Masters 1000 event, so, you know, such as Paris. So they're automatically entered. And so it wasn't a, a existential decision to play. On the other hand, they should be automatically entered into the Cincinnati. This, this year is just, yeah, in, in all times, the Paris indoor, I don't think of that as a training for the Australian Open. And you're right, here it's being played two months before the Australian Open. So who, who even knows and who knows where these, the bodies are and also once... Maybe Novak decided not to play. Rafa feels his obligation to, to fulfill his obligation to it. It's so strange. So, and then in, yeah. we're following this whole Australian quarantine deal. You arrive in Australia two weeks inside a government approved quarantine hotel. And how that implicate, are they going to have, be allowed to practice? So we'll look at that down the road. So yeah, this whole year is just so strange. But Gil, <laughs> let's go back to something that Joel said, and, and I want your thoughts on this. Um, the year in number one, how important is that to you? Big. I think it's big. I think tennis players grow up and when they reach a certain level, any player who, who realizes that it's a possibility to finish year end number one, that becomes one of their chief goals. I think if you're in Dominic team's position right now, before you call it quits, you want a year end number one. Now that you've won your major, everyone wants to win a major. That's almost next. Like that might be number two. And I think Federer and Sampras both took, I don't know who had the record before them, Joel. I think both of them took major pride in their, in their record for most that was consecutive weeks of year number one. That was Jimmy Connors who finished number one for five straight years. And then Sampras wanted to break that record. And speaking of the European fall season, he put himself through heck and creation to, to do that. And he played, I mean, <clears throat> the European fall indoor circuit is not easy for a lot of players. I mean, the, it's cold. It's a lot of indoor time. I mean, it's not, it's not Paris in the spring. And Sampras really busted himself to really to earn that record and finish number one for a sixth straight time, which no one has done ever. So... Yeah, it's interesting. I, I'm, I, and I think, and I think the same thing. Yeah, men, woman, year end number one is a is a pretty big deal in the history of tennis. As this podcast goes on, I think you guys are going to see that I lean heavily to the slams. Like I have this slam bias, and the reason is, don't hate me, people. Don't think that I only <laughs> fly in for the slams, and that's the only time I'm paying attention. No. Um, think of me more as the quaint everyman who really appreciates the slams for the spectacle and the greatness that they are. But um, I think it's because of my experience covering other sports like the NBA or the NFL. It's really all about that championship. It's all about the rings. Um, so for me, my bias shifts slightly that way. And maybe the year end number one would be the equivalent of NBA MVP or something like that, um, which is, you know, it's something, but 
I just, I read a lot about history, sports history and human history. And lately I've been reading about the fall of Pompeii and there were some people involved in the fall of Pompeii that were big. I mean, they were huge and now we don't even know their names. I mean, it's like, who is that person? You know, so, so I think having this perspective of, year in number one okay once you've won it once or twice yeah you've got that on your resume check that box it's just I, for me it's 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 slams and and you know titles and and championships are way up here and this sort of pointsy thing is sort of down here okay i'm gonna i'm good i'm gonna arm wrestle you on this okay arm wrestle hmm. i think I, I i agree with slams and usually what what's what's happened in tennis is that they've kind of they fall in sync, you know, it's like the year in number one and the slam winner. So they're not, they're not far apart. And it's not just, it's not just the batting average. I mean, for example, Sophie Cannon will not be number one on the year end, but I, to me, she's the player of the year on the woman's side because she's reached two major finals. <clears throat> she doesn't, she won't have earned enough points to topple Ash Barty. But again, this is a wacky year, but to me, year in number one, it's, it's not analogous to something in another sport. This is tennis. And one of the things one of the things I always sometimes get upset with with tennis is why tennis feels a need to have to find its comparison to other sports. I don't hear, I don't hear Charles Barkley talking about God. I never won Wimbledon. You know, what I mean, I mean, I never won my sports equivalent of Wimbledon. So let's let's find with tennis. Tennis has some unique things. These are individual players who perform at individual basis, and it's not it's not just pointsy like like the Grand Prix or accumulation. And there have been years where the year end number one didn't even win a major. And then the guy who, the guy who won majors didn't. So they, they, they altered that a lot in the last, um, in the last 15 or 20 years with the Masters 1000 and a significant amount of points for the majors. But I just think, I just think when you look at aspects of the history of tennis, finishing the year number one speaks to something pretty, pretty darn good. And I get, I get the, Every person's thing. Good. That's that's why we're a tennis show. Yeah, yeah. So what what do you think, Gil? There's even I think even even tennis people, even people who are not what was the term? Every daysman. Every man or every woman. Okay. Yeah. I I understand. I understand where where Amy's coming from. There's there's levels to it. Um, I I agree that slams are number one. I just think something like year end number one and winning a lot of masters titles. And, and, you know, to be honest, I think there's a pretty big gap between a 250 and a 500. Those kind of blend together to me. And then a masters 1000. I think the, even the masters tournaments holds, you know, a a fair bit more prestige than the two fifties and the five hundreds. The majors are of course a level above, and that's just how the calendar is designed. Tennis is one of the most oversaturated, or not, not over. I just want to say saturated. Uh, it's one of the most saturated sports that exists in the world. It is going on at all hours of time. There are multiple tournaments at once. You can have a day where from, uh, in the, on the East coast in the United States, there is tennis on from 3am to 12pm. It is the shortest off season in the world. So yeah, we need to pick spots where we magnify it and elevate it. And that happens to, to be to the greatest extent, the four slams and to a secondary extent, the masters. I agree, the masters are big. I mean, and just a tournament, like winning a tournament to me is a huge deal. 
Um, so when you've got like a, forget the slams, when you've got a long list of titles where you've hoisted the trophy, to me, that is very significant. Points to me are somewhat of an artificial construct. But that's but no, just they're, they're in from tournaments. I mean, right, right. But and so I think how they're weighted and all that. And I mean, it's just the very things that we it's less organic, I guess, than well, just holding up the trophy. Oh, yeah. But wait, but we just talked about the one that the slams where you get 2000 points, the the masters, you get 1000 points, the career. I mean, the good news is, again, this stuff pretty much equals out. But again, there's something pretty neat about a year, the, finishing the year, 52 weeks. I finished the year number one. And the neat part, even when there have been some years where it's come down to what might happen in London, that, that rarely happens, by the way. That's why when we kind of talk about London, I'll bring up my thing about is, uh, is London the, uh, the, the Super Bowl or the All-Star Game? Because the year end, the, the, finishing, the finishing conclusion, or is it more like an All-Star Game and we see some skills and some really excellent tennis, but that's, that's later. But for example, I don't, I think, uh, again, I think year end number one is more important than the number of times a guy won the year end, uh, the year end tournament. Rafa Nadal, the rest of the big three, Joel, you and I had a quick back and forth a couple weeks ago, or maybe last week about whether or not the big three and particularly Nadal is getting better or worse. So on today's show, we want to just flesh out that question. Are the big three getting better or worse? Amy, where do you stand on this? Because Joel and I had that quick back and forth. So I want to know where you land. And and what was really cool is in the comment section on YouTube, um, people really picked up on that and, and started continuing the debate, which I thought was great. Such an interesting question fraught with so many um, side sort of tangents. Um, I think for me, if, if you want me to answer the question, I think that the answer is both. They're getting both better and worse. And it may be a situation where it's kind of coming all out in the wash. Um, there is no denying nature. Like you cannot deny that getting older will diminish your skills physically. Um, however, uh, the brain, it's been proven that the brain develops new circuitry and develops new neurons and you have the experience, you learn how you learn better, you learn to take care of your body better. Um, every match you play is an opportunity, as Rafa says, every, every time you take the court is an opportunity to learn something new about the sport. So on balance, um, it may be that they're getting better slightly. I, I like that thinking. And uh, it's kind of this, this mix of things. And the thing I learned when I've talked to ex-players, it's kind of the, the young impetuous. I was young. I was fearless. I could be out there all day. And then kind of comes the kind of self-maintenance phase, right? Like, like uh, okay, I can't just trash myself and maybe like once upon a time that meant now I won't play doubles as often or I'll be more attuned to scheduling right or I'll, I'll look to shorten points you know it's kind of fun it's just like when uh when Federer began working with Edberg and someone said to me oh Edberg was a great volleyer I wonder if he's telling Federer to come to net more I said well first coaching is not autobiography secondly uh I never met a coach tell a player to come to net less <laughs> 
<laughs> I mean, that's fascinating. I, you rarely see a coach. I mean, you know, Gil, I mean, you, you learned a very grinding, consistent baseline game, but I don't think your coach, yeah, don't come up to net as often. Now come up to that intelligently. So, so, but I think you're onto something, Amy, with, with, with learning, with physiology. I think this can be a fun, ongoing assignment for us as we talk with people, as you talk with players and coaches, say, what is improvement? How do you balance improvement with erosion? I mean, and again, and how, yeah. see how well players might think they're playing. It'd be interesting to ask various players, did you improve as you get older? I mean, I do know this. I do know that every pro I've, every ex world-class player I've ever talked to says, there's definitely an improvement a few years into, into the career. It has to happen. It's kind of like sink or swim. You know, you come out of the tour when you're 19 or 21, and then you better be improving. You better be better by the time you're 25 or else you won't be lasting because the tour is this, uh, what is it? It's, a, it's an escalator. It keeps on moving. So, but then, then what happens? Then what happens? Are you maintaining? Are you adding weapons? I don't, it's fascinating. Well, we got to address the anomaly here with the big three because Joel, you just described basically the norm where, you know, you, you break through between the age of 18, if you're a young phenom, but maybe you're, maybe you're 23, 24, 25, you better get better. You should be in your prime by the time you're 27 through maybe 30 years of age. The big three have just prolonged their dominant winning ways beyond what, what I could imagine. I'll speak for myself. So that's the, that's the question. Why have they been such an anomaly? To me, it's all, it comes down to adaptation. Yes. Adaptation. Look, the ways uh, Federer's openness to things, for example, whereas Pete Sampras admitted he was stubborn about his racket and his head, the head size of his racket, Federer, they're, they're, right, an adaptation and a certain openness on Federer's part. Nadal also, I think all of them, all of them, and I think it's also easier to get reinforcement for that because the game is more homogenous than it used to be. I mean, we talked before about the surfaces are all a lot more similar than they used to be. So it's kind of like the, the ruling class can stay the ruling class. They're not having to enter the, the specialized clay season, the grass season, you know, a lot more similarities uh, across. And these guys, yeah, they're, they're so good. And then, and then without taking anyone specifically to task, I sometimes wonder if the, the player, the contenders and all the others have kind of like acquiesced. It's almost, it's almost like, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to get to tell my grandchildren I played Roger Federer yeah. and, and, and kind of, do they, who's going to come along? And we we again, this has been going on for what, probably at least seven years if not even 10, who's going to come along. Who's going to raid the party and not just have a little bit like the Stan and Andy and occasionally others. And, 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 and the numbers are just so amazing how these guys have gobbled up so many goodies in the last 15 years. I think if you're asking, why the anomaly with these three, I think 90% of it comes down to schedule management. Um, and it, it, like you said, and like Joel said, it's a, it's a self-perpetuating deal because the more you win, the more money you have, the more resources you have, the more friends you have, the more you are able to manage and pick and choose extremely carefully. But it's interesting, I did um, something on Nadal leading into just before his 12th uh, French Open. And I looked at 
uh, the last, I don't know, it was maybe 10 years, uh, had he played a lot and did he go on to win the French Open? Had he played a tiny amount? You know, had he been injured? And the finding was that it, it really didn't matter. He won the French Open whether he played the entire clay court season and won every title or whether he was only able to play Rome that year or whatever, for whatever reason, he would still go and win the title. So um, just, just the um, sheer not having to travel the world at this frenetic pace and, you know, be in an airplane, I think you can't underestimate uh, what that means to somebody's career. Well, it's, it can't be one factor. And I a hundred percent agree that it is a factor. And the, I'd say the raggedness and the, the tax that the lifestyle of being a lesser player will take on the body and the mind should not be underestimated. And, and certainly the big three have, have been good enough where they've been able to avoid that taxing lifestyle to an extent. But that's not really up there for me. I, I look at it as much more, I guess, less scientific and more technical. I do think that from a nature perspective, they have declined. And that's why Federer has had to shorten points and to change his racket head size. And that's why Nadal has had to play differently and more aggressively and found ways to make up for the fact that his speed has declined. And now we see Novak Djokovic hitting more drop shots and hitting bigger second serves. So I think that they've just adapted their games to basically allow themselves to continue winning, although, you know, despite or in spite of their physical decline. The last thing I'll add is that undoubtedly all three of them have pushed each other into doing so. But also, I think when we look at their, their wear and tear, I think Federer and Nadal are in one, one part of the ship and Novak is in a little other. I think Federer is, yeah. first of all, he's five, six years older. And we've seen fairly often examples, even over the last seven, 10 years of Federer's body betraying him and him needing to kind of, not betraying him, just being a human being and him needing to kind of take a pit stop whether it was the knee injury in 2016 or even further back with the back injury and things, and even the adaptation of the playing style. I mean, and he, and very, very smartly managing his schedule. I mean, those several years where he didn't even play Roland Garros or clay tennis. Um, Rafa has had as far back as a teenager, he's had major injuries that have taken him off, put him on the shelf for a while. Novak only a year older than Roger. I think of him is still pretty much in the fresh, in the fresh thing, he doesn't seem to have, he doesn't have as, seem to have as many miles on him. I, I, no, I but he's push, had surgery. He's That's had true. surgery. Yeah. Yeah. Well, did, he didn't call it that. Right? Procedure. No, actually, I have to correct you. I have to correct you. He didn't call it that at first, but I have been in a press conference where the word okay. surgery slipped out. Yeah. Okay. Got it. <laughs> Joel, let me push back on, on the Novak thing. Um, in that French Open final, we just watched him play against Rafael Nadal. Do you not think a younger Novak, a younger version of Novak Djokovic would have resorted to more defensive play and try to use his legs to stay in points a little bit longer? I don't know if he would have been able to do that against someone like Nadal in a clay court final. And I know also, but on the other hand, the fatigue. But look, look how uh, uh, Novak was fatigued in the 2013 Wimbledon final against Murray after Novak had a very taxing five set semi with Del Potro. So, so 
I know I I see what you mean about Novak. It, it and again the other thing with Novak, the COVID. This is a guy who had COVID this year. I don't exactly. know the, that that's a whole thing. No one on the planet knows that. And this is a guy as fit as any athlete ever, maybe. So we don't know. And Novak, it's it's interesting also how we could explore how each of them has extended and prolonged and improved in the ways they devote themselves. Novak very much kind of the sports science diet thing that really got him going with the kicking the gluten in 2011 and getting things going and and the Dow was some tactical things they each they each pursue it in their own way their own ways of kind of like improvement and extension and fitness I'm I'm glad you brought up the COVID thing because I think that Novak and I'm not saying this is because of COVID but I will say that Djokovic looked stronger before the tour went on pause he just Mm -hmm. did uh, and I know he's won two titles since then. I, I'm well aware of, you know, he wins Western and Southern, he wins Rome. Doesn't change anything. He looked better before the tour was put on pause. Ever since coming back, he's had to really kind of slog things out. And he's done a lot of winning, but it hasn't been easy for him. So I'm kind of holding out and delaying my judgment when it comes to Novak's physicality, which I don't think has been fantastic since coming back. I'm holding out judgment until next year also i wonder about practice and or, or match play It'd be interesting to ask players how many matches do you need to play in tournaments to feel that you got it and and how many, or, and what's the practice match mix there's one last angle i want to try to attack this because people are going to have different perspectives on this question it's a difficult question how do we begin to try to answer it with real evidence, you know, because this is, this is difficult. They're not doing any less winning. Um, so if they're all getting worse, well, they're still better than everyone else. It's like, Amy, if we think about this, is there a way where we can get to the bottom of this question? What, what is the question? What is, is, let's take one player. Let's take Rafa Nadal. Is there any way where we can try to examine if Rafa Nadal is better in 2020 at the French Open than he was in 2008 at the French Open. Uh, Yeah, I mean, any scientist would start with a hypothesis, you know, so maybe your hypothesis might be that he is better today than he was. Well, then the subjective part comes in and you've got to identify the metrics, right? maybe one metric would be um, service games one or serve speed or, um, you know, you maybe you would have a series of, I don't know, 25 metrics and then you would test your hypothesis. Um, but to me, as a pseudo social scientist, I, I'm not even sure that's important. I think the important thing is is he still winning? Um, is he still successful? And can he go on from here? And I think the answer to all of that is yes. These are great questions. And it's interesting, you know, because we've got, we've got these guys continue to succeed in this era of uh, increased scientific exploration of sports. So the question being raised, which like the 25 metrics wouldn't have even come and play in the Sampras Agassi era. Well, they're winning. And then the other factor is also, well, is their competition getting better? They, so if their competition is getting better and they're still winning, then that might be, they might be getting better too. You know, his number, 
is number five better than the number five of 15 years ago? And we always hear about depth. And then the other question is like, well, why do we care? Why do we care if he's, if he's improving or getting worse? Then maybe the question becomes, what are the signs of each? And then as, as Gil, as you ask things about, uh, about uh, data, is it, is it bad losses? Is it, is it surfaces? Is it consistency of winds? And then at a certain point, it's kind of like, huh, okay, science, enough of the science. I mean, it's, it's, it, it, but it's intriguing to see how a player's career evolves. Also, Gil, from a scientific perspective, your question even assumes something that hasn't been proven. And that is that once a player is on the decline, he's on that trajectory for good. And I think in particular, Federer has proven that trajectories go like this. And just because somebody's on the decline now doesn't mean that they couldn't tick up later. So, um, and Nadal. 2015, 2016, bad years for Nadal. He was clearly compromised and then he got better. Well, this is where the prediction stuff, this is comes back to my whole thing about forecasting. And when I started writing about this sport long, long time ago, uh, Borg and McEnroe were going to be here forever. Connors, he was in the decline. Lendl was in the ascent. And then, and then Borg retired. And then Connors won some more. And then Lendl finally proved that he could. So there's this whole, the question, if we look at things like improvement and decline, are we looking at it to understand? Are we looking at to understand what's occurred and what we enjoy in these people? Or is it being used as a market indicator to help some, to help fuel someone's desire to make a prediction, which again, um, I do reveal a lot of my biases here about things about forward looking and predictions and forecasting and all that kind of stuff that's kind of tricky yeah, i remember i remember when uh when nadal beat Federer in 08 when you were a young boy gil at <laughs> wimbledon and then beat him in the australian open final i, I was someone, watching okay <laughs> so someone um someone said well we'll we'll we'll, we'll pretty much won't be seeing Federer in contention anymore and roger cried and maybe even roger worried about that too i mean well what if robin soderling doesn't have that great day what if the aforementioned uh you know, some yeah. of these players don't, uh, you know, Roger loses. I mean, it's so, it's, it's fascinating. And then how does that shape confidence and improvement? Well, I'll answer one of your questions. What am I interested in? What I'm interested in, and I'll never know the answer to this question. It's, it's futile. I want to know what would happen if Nadal played Nadal. If the defensive grinding, lightning quick, uh, high loopy forehand version of Rafa Nadal played this version of Nadal that we just saw at the French Open with unbelievable amount of variety and f- uh, serve plus one tennis and court positioning That's diversity. Question. That's a matchup question. That might, ne- that might necessarily mean he's better. I mean, for example, that, that's, a, that's a good question. That's Nadal versus Nadal, but that right. doesn't mean Nadal versus, okay, the 2019, okay, here's one I think you might want to see instead maybe. The okay. 2019, the 2020 Rafa versus the 2011 Novak, the Novak who was beating him. Would that with the Nadal we just saw in Paris beat the Novak that beat him at the Wimbledon final? Would he beat him at Wimbledon? You know what I mean? So that yeah. these are all, these are all. But of course, this to me is uh, is uh, science fiction. It's science it fiction. Is. I so, think. 
part of the reason that we want to know if they're worse or if they're on the decline is because we want to know the future. We want to know if it's still okay to invest our emotions in rooting for these guys because we don't want them to stop ever. Um, and we won't want some, we were searching for some modicum of control to understand the future, but we can't. Well, this is, this is fine. And I went through this. I mean, you'll never meet anyone who explored single-minded obsession over a player more than the hours I put into Jimmy Connors. So I kind of played these questions through with someone for more than 20 years, right, to book form. And I realized that some of this, this is funny, this gets into the existential. This is way beyond grips and techniques. It has to do with our relationship to mortality and how yes. we see. And so the yes. reason why people live and die with their sports heroes. And again, I'm going to tell you this, Gil, you'll see this more as athletes start getting younger than you. It's like, wow, if, if Superman is in decline, what does that say about me and my life? If Superman can't hit, or hit the curve or Superman is double faulting and the cathartic way we connect to these people for better as extensions or opposites, you know, that there's a part of me, like there's a part of, there's a part of me that channels into the parts of Jimmy Connors I like Mm -hmm. is aware of the parts that aren't so savory because that's the other thing about these sports people but it's safely done through sports so our desire to see what they could be might be improving am i getting am i improving am i improving i mean am i getting worse am i getting better where what's my decline amy and i are older than you so we spend a little more time thinking about this stuff you you're younger gil enjoy <laughs> uh, okay. speak for yourself joel <laughs> One of the reasons this show is so cool is we have the generational differences and um, tennis brings together the different generations and genders and all that. It's great. Yeah. And genders and, and, and approaches to the game and, and learning and all that stuff. 100% and a fitting way to end this episode of three about the big three and aging. We hope you enjoyed this one. Remember to like the video, leave a comment on YouTube and subscribe. We're also available on all podcast platforms and we greatly appreciate it if you leave a rating and review on iTunes. And we will see you next time on the next episode of Three.